This week on the In-Depth with Bram Bensinger podcast, Caroline Wozniacki, the former tennis star, has been retired from the sport since 2020 and now has two kids with husband and former NBA All-Star David Lee. But when we met up back in 2014, she opens up about her meteoric rise to the top. I didn't expect myself to do it in such a young age either. You know, I think everything just went so fast. And reflects on the two years spent as number one tennis player in the world. My tennis is my number one priority, but I have a life as well. She also shines some light on her close friendship with Serena Williams. She's always been there for me and I've tried to be there for her whenever she's needed me. And uh, I think that's what friend friends are for. But we get started with her childhood where she grew up in a family filled with athletes. Well, so you have good athletic genes, obviously. Your dad played professional soccer. Your mom uh, played for uh, Poland's national uh, volleyball, volleyball team. Um, to what extent though, did they never pressure you to get into uh, athletics? Um, they never pressured me uh, to get into athletics, really, but I mean, just seeing everyone being active in my family kind of got me into it, and I, I love sports. I mean, when I was two, I just learned how to walk, you know, and I was skiing already. My parents took me really? skiing and swimming. We had a pool in our backyard, so I learned how to swim really quickly as well. And uh, we have handball. It's a very European sport, but, you know, I did that, gymnastics, um, tennis I did everything really growing up I wanted to play soccer because that's what my brother did but my my dad my dad especially thought that it was a sport for guys so he's like you know trying to convince my brother to try different sports so that I would get into it and he said really? you know try tennis and uh, so then I was like, okay, if my brother plays tennis, I want to play tennis too. And, uh, you know, I kind of started from there. Then my parents were playing doubles and no one wanted to play with me because I, was, I wasn't good enough. So uh, the competitor I am, I already had that competitive gene from very young age. I was like, you know what, I'm going to show them that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be good enough. So I just took a racket and some balls and started hitting up against the wall for like hours and hours every day. And... Uh, my dad saw that and he's like, okay, you know what, if you want to play tennis, I'll help you out. And it kind of started from there. And my mom was the first one in my family to beat, that I beat. And that really, I was so excited. And then my dad was the next one. Do you remember beating uh, your mom or dad? I do. But the most memorable one was when I beat my brother. I was 10 years old. I remember this, like, was it yesterday? And he was and, like 14 <laughs> or 15, right? Your yes, brother? He was, he's four years older. So, okay. And he broke the rackets he had and he he hasn't he's never played with me again and oh uh, he hasn't no and actually one of the rackets he broke was my dad's and uh he he was like caroline do not tell dad that i broke the racket and i'm like okay and the next day we're going on holidays and my, i'm like what do you want to do what what do you want me to do so my brother just put the racket in the bag and he thought my dad wouldn't notice <laughs> but uh my dad's like okay let me just check the strings and he saw like the framers were he's like who did this? And my brother's like, well, I kind of did. I lost to Caroline. So, yeah, and I, that was one of the highlights <laughs> and uh, something I always, uh, you know, I tell my brother from time to time, remember that day? And he surely and does. And never played with you again? No. Is it true by, like, uh, fifth grade you knew that you wanted to be, uh, you know, not only number one in the world, but win like all four Grand Slams, like you already had those goals? Yeah, I, uh, we have some clips that I, uh, when I was on TV, when I was about uh, maybe yeah, 11, 12, something like that, and maybe even younger, and uh, they asked me, what's your dream? And I said, my dream is to become number one in the world and, and win the four Grand Slams. So 
I had I had big dreams already back then. And by then, I read somewhere that you were practicing, like at 11 years old, you're practicing 20 hours a week, six six days a week. I practiced a lot. I mean... Um, what, like, why that much then? Um, I don't know. I mean, when I was about 10, I had to choose between swimming and tennis because I was really good at both sports. And... Uh, my coach at tennis and my coach at swing, they're already getting upset that, you know, every other week I would do one competition over yeah. the other. And they're like, hey, you need to kind of choose, you know, what do you want to do? And why uh, did you choose tennis? I'm not a morning person. <laughs> that was <laughs> really? one of the big things, you know, being in the pool by six o'clock in the morning was really hard for me. And then cold water is not a good combo. And, and you have you to like do to that if in. you're swimming? Yeah. Okay. And then you go late nights as well. So. I thought tennis was a little bit more fun, and uh, that's that's why I chose tennis. I think I made the right choice. And, you think uh, you could have had as much success in swimming had you put your uh, I guess you know, mind to that? I guess instead? it's hard to say, but I mean, I was doing really well, and um, I guess I would have become good. I don't know yeah. how good I would have been because I always had that, you know, competitive gene again, and I always worked hard for for things. So I guess I would have reached a certain level, but I, I mean. I think I did well, you know, in choosing tennis. I read uh, about your dad. How did he become your coach? Um, I think, like I said, you know, I was hitting up against the walls for so many hours, and my dad's like, well, if, you know, I can help you out. And um, he never really knew tennis. He was playing a little bit for fun, but never really, you know, anything great. And, uh, you know, he was always there at my practice sessions. You know, I had different coaches growing up, but... Uh, he was always there. He was learning. He was watching a lot of matches and everything. And in the end, you know, we just we have this such a close bond. And uh, he he kind of guided me through through it all. Always wanted the best for me. And you know, I trust him with you know everything. And I think that that's very important to have that connection. And there obviously have been other stories of you know parents coaching the, their kids. But it, it does you know from an outsider looking in it seems odd how somebody who as you said you know really didn't know much about tennis can coach you know yeah. their their kid to becoming a you know number one yeah. in in the world. So how, did did he just I mean he like learned Andrew, so much growing up and obviously we learned together as well because obviously we there's been some mistakes on the way, sure. you know, with some maybe technical things or whatever, but he always wanted to listen to the best coaches or the ones with more experience. And he always, uh, he was probably, you know, my biggest support out there. And he watched so many matches. He looked at techniques. He looked, you know, my dad, uh, yeah, he just kind of learned along the way. And, you know, uh, he wanted the best for me. So, uh, and, you know, even though sometimes maybe, it wasn't the right, uh, <laughs> I remember one time my dad told me it was in one of our practice sessions and I got so upset, I said, I'm done practicing for the day and I left. What, what did he say? <laughs> he's like, you don't look at the ball when you, when you do an overhead or when you serve. And I'm like, I do, you know, and I'm telling you, I'm actually looking at the ball, obviously, otherwise I couldn't hit the ball. And he's like, no, no, no. So he said, okay, have a ball in your hand. I'm going to put a ball up in the air. And if you're actually looking at the ball, the ball you have in your hand will hit the other ball, you know, so that he's feeding me a ball. Yeah. The first hit that he does, or the first shot, I hit the ball and the ball goes straight back. It hits the other ball and goes double as fast down on my nose and I started bleeding. I was like, oh my God, I'm so upset. I got so pissed with him and I left. I said, I'm done, you know, stupid exercise. Right. 
And did anybody come, like, was that just something he made up? or did It he was actually... something he just made up because he's like, you know, I think she doesn't look at the ball when she does. And, you... and I obviously did, and uh, <laughs> I made my point, and I'm, I was done. <laughs> um, how about the best and worst part of having your father as your coach? Well, the best part is I, you know, I'm very close to my family, so family is so important to me, and to have someone... Uh, you know, travel with me all the time means so much to me. And it's an individual sport as well. So it can kind of get lonely if you just travel by yourself. And uh, Right, you're just in a hotel room exactly, in random the hotel. parts of the world. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, uh, that's probably the best part to have family close to me all the time. And sometimes the worst thing is obviously, I think if someone spends so much time together, sometimes we bump heads, and especially because we're both you know, very stubborn. Right. And even if we know we're wrong, we're going to try and turn it to say that we're right. So uh, sometimes we have our arguments, but I think that's normal. Well, even if you guys weren't <laughs> stubborn, I mean, I love my dad. I yeah. love spending time with him, but yeah. I'd get sick of him if I, I was know. with him nine, ten months yeah. out of the year on the road. Yeah, but I guess, you know, we give each other space right. as well. My dad, I think he has, I mean, he has friends everywhere in the world. It's mm -hmm. crazy. I think he's Polish, so... I think there's Polish people everywhere, and uh, you know, I often just hear him say, "Do you have any plans?" Now? I'm like, "No, not really. I'm not doing it." He's like, "Okay, well, I'm going. You know, I'm going to a barbecue with my friends here. I'm going there." I'm like, "Where do you know all these right. people from?" And he's like, "I don't know. You know, it just kind of happens." We were talking about this a little bit before the interview. You have obviously a lot of friends on tour, and then reading about you, you know, articles say, you know, that's not really common among like, you know, professional tennis players agree, d disagree? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very personal. It's very, you know, from person to person, it's very different. Obviously, some people like to have friends on tour. Some people prefer just to keep to themselves. But, you know, I have uh, a few really good friends on the tour that I love to hang out with, and uh, we always have a good laugh. And for me, that's that's so important because, again, it's, you know, otherwise we travel, you know, nine, ten months of the year, and, you know, it can get lonely. So for me... It's nice to kind of catch a break and just go for a movie, go for dinner and just go out and have a laugh and not think about the tennis. Some athletes I've interviewed, um, mainly some of the older re retired ones, they would n never want to be friends or socialize with the competition. They just yeah. would not have it. Um, how difficult at all is that for you to compete against people that you know, you've become close friends with? Um, not, not hard at all, actually. Yeah. I'm so good at just... Uh, you know, um, saying on court, you know, we, we're we competitors and we do our best to win. But once we're off the court, it's completely different. And uh, we just, uh, we have a good time. Like, like you were playing uh, Serena recently, exactly, who yeah. you were close friends with. What What's that like for you when, like, you're out there with her? It's not fun because I don't have a good record against her. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, mo most people uh, don't, though. Right? No. But, I mean, yeah, I played her... Uh, yeah, and I uh, lost 7-5 in the third, unfortunately. But, you know, once you're on the court, you just, you're in your own little bubble and uh, you just really just try and win. You don't really care who's on the other side. You know, you do everything in your power to win. So, um, so that's it. But, you know, then again, just the day after, we start texting and we just, uh, you know, she was still in Montreal and I, I was in Cincinnati and just, uh, you know, catching up and... Just having a good time. Kind of. Will you guys say anything about the match? Or no, you don't even... tennis then is not important. Really? <laughs> so many other things that are more interesting than the tennis. So you won't say like, man, you kicked my ass? Or no, not okay. at all. No, I mean, 
we're kind of then you're kind of moved on and yeah. you're like you know we're on to the next chapter we have many other interesting things we prefer to talk about right than the than the day job i was talking to your uh, agent john yeah. tobias and he was telling me and i think you signed with him at like 14 years yeah, old so i some... think something 13 maybe because it was at my uh i remember six men in suits coming to my uh junior french open qualifying right and, and that's something that agents apparently don't, don't go to do and he said it was he, he even felt awkward sitting there um <laughs> in a suit but so you signed with him 13 14 years old whatever you are he said he, he would have bet his house that there was no chance you would have ever been number one at 18 years old. And obviously, not only do you prove him wrong, but you're number one for two consecutive years, which I think you're one of only maybe seven players yeah, ever to do so. Why do you think uh, you ended up being able to do it and do it at such a young age? Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't expect myself to do it in such a young age either. You know, I think everything just went so fast and I moved up the ranking so fast and... Um, yeah, I think, uh, again, I have I had good hands. I had some really good runs, and all of a sudden I, I was playing, and I knew that if I won a match against Petra Kvitova in Beijing, I'd become number one, and I was so nervous going into that match. And you were. It was my biggest dream to become number one. I knew I was so close just one match away, and uh, I ended up winning, and it was such an emotional time for me. And he said uh, you were playing better tennis players but you were winning because of your confidence. Um, agree? Um, I don't know. I mean, I always think I'm the better player when I go yeah. on court. You know, I. I mean, you, even then, though. I mean, even yeah, when you're this I mean, like eighteen-year-old kid. I've always, uh, you know, believed in myself. When you go on court, I always believe I'm better than the other player. Um, well, that's confidence. I, even I know if you it aren't. is I definitely. Mean. But you know, I think. Um, if you don't, you've already lost beforehand, so there's no point in going out there. You know, you can't. You have to believe in yourself. You have to, you know, have the belief that the work you've put in that that's gonna pay off. The 2010 China Open, the the first time you became number one um, in the world. What do you recall from that? It was. I couldn't even describe the feeling. Uh, I was playing again Petra, and uh, I went out to that match. I was feeling so nervous. I beginning of the year I didn't expect myself to be in a position where I was fighting for the number one spot and uh, Veras Venereva was uh, you know breathing down my neck and I knew that you know either one of us was going to be number one I, and she kept winning she always played matches before me and mm -hmm. I knew that whoever of us would go further in the tournament would catch her capture the number one ranking and she kept winning and winning and I'm like oh my god are you kidding me you know like I but I knew that if I if I win uh, I think it was my semi-final match against Petra then I would at least have it for one week, and uh, when I won, I was like, this, this can't be true, it can't be true that already by now I have one of my biggest dreams come true, and uh, we had this big cake and uh, champagne and everything there, it was, it was amazing. How cool was it celebrating on court with uh, your dad after that? It was amazing. You know, my dad kept telling me, you know, you're number one in the world, this is what you always, you know, dreamed of, this is what you were aiming for growing up, and... Yeah, it's kind of hit me at one point. I think after the tournament, I was like, oh my God, this actually really happened. So you pretty much immediately get global endorsement deals uh, after that. How does life change on the, almost like the business end after being number one <laughs> it or changed, becoming number one? It changed uh, a lot for me. And uh, I had so many things both on and off the court that I need to remember. And, you know, obviously 
when when you're just a young upcoming player you have all the time in the world to practice you can do whatever you want but you know all of a sudden you have you know a lot of sponsors you have commitments you have things that you have to do off the court as well and i think you always have to kind of try and find a time but Sometimes I would cut down on my training schedules just because, you know, it was too much. But at the same time, when I was then on the court, I would give it 100% because yeah. I knew that you don't have four hours. You know, you can't right. start off terribly and then, you know, kind of make up for it later. But, you know, that worked really well for me. And obviously, I, you know, I love I, I loved both the on and off court thing of, of the sport and, and my job. And I think, uh, you know, it's a great place to be in. Uh, the 2009... Uh, Doha WTA uh, championship. It is, I mean, I, I watched it for the first time the other day. It's incredible video. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, obviously, was not a fun time for you then. Um, no. But what do you recall from that? I still look back and I'm thinking, how did I, how did I win that match? You know, I was up, I think six love five one, and I had match points. And then all of a sudden, Zornareva starts playing incredible, and we got into this third set, and I get full, I had body cramps. I already had leg cramps from the second set on. Uh, I had an injury going, and it was uh -huh. really hot, and it kind of started cramping. And then I started my other leg, and then at five four and a third, um, I just went. I hit the shot into the net, and I kind of get disappointed. I, put my body backwards and I just start cramping first in one leg, then the other, then, you know, calves, then stomach, back, everything just start cramping. I fall down on the ground and I'm just told, we can't help you up. I'm like, I can't stand up. And they're like, we can't help and you. And they can't help you because you they already got help. treatment no, during that match just, for Nobody's cramps, allowed to help you on your legs. So okay. you just have to make your own way up. And then you cannot get cram you cannot get treatment for cramps. Because uh, it's not considered like an injury? It's not considered an injury. So... You know, it's so I was kind of like, okay, you know, I'm out on my own here, uh, and somehow I managed to finish that match. I was in, I had some uh, fluids, uh, some uh, I had to be into an IV after the match, and was lying there for like two hours, cooling down. It was crazy. And to clarify here, I mean, literally, you're like standing up after you know you hit the ball, and it is, it's as it's if your legs body. just get, like give out completely, and you. Yeah, hit, hit I mean, my hamstring, my, you know, my thighs, everything just started cramping up. And every time I try to stretch one leg, you know, I cramp in the other. And then I'm trying to stretch that and my back cramps. And then I'm trying to do right. that and my stomach cramps. And I, then I just fall down on the floor. I look like I'm getting shot or something. You, I mean, you did. I did, yeah. Yeah, obviously, you know, like you're on the ground. You managed to get up, tears, yeah. uh, understandably, you know, coming, coming down. How many other girls do you think would have toughed it out? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think a lot. I don't know how I managed to do it. I mean, I was in so much pain and yeah, I was exhausted as well. And as I said, I looked like I'd been sh shot. So when I look back, I'm like, you know, I'm cringing looking at it because I'm like, I know how much pain I'm in, but it actually kind of looks funny as well, <laughs> a little bit. Oh, so you, you know, can laugh at I it. I can laugh. I'm okay. laughing at it now because, okay. you know, I be, passed it. So. It was like devastating then though, wasn't it? I mean. I know, but I mean, in the end I won. So I was like, right. oh my God, I can't believe I won this. You know, right. I'm like, this is, yeah, I was really proud of myself. I kind of you know, gave myself a little bit on the show. I was like, you know, this is pretty cool. You think you'd tough it out uh, now if you were in the same s situation? Or was it more like then more was on? 
I'm I'm a competitor, okay. so yeah. I definitely would, uh, you know, try and grind it out. But you know, again, I managed to finish it at six and and won the next game six four. I think if I'd lost that and kind of had to play three more games, it would have looked differently. Yeah, I don't know how I'd have survived that. Explain uh, why you rely more on, on defense, and I know that's gotten a lot of kind of. Yeah, I actually play. I think that's not really accurate as well because obviously it depends who you play. You know? wh why do you think people s say that? I don't know. Um, obviously, there's some matches where you have to rely on your defense, sure. and you know you just know that the other player has you know harder shots than you, and you kind of need to change up the pace and kind of take the pace out of play. And I think sometimes that's why people say, oh, she's playing defense, where you actually, you're just figuring out a way to win because some of the girls are bigger than you, they're stronger, or they just have, as I said, heavier shots. So you kind of need to, to figure out another way to win. You can't really play power every shot. And I think that's, again, one of my my biggest weapons that I can I can play aggressively when I, when I need to or go back into defense. And I think because I, I'm so fast on the court as well. I get that extra, extra ball into play and yeah. You've been criticized before for being too defensive, yet people fail to realize that, it seems like people fail to realize that you've beaten every big player in the world and been in the Grand Slam finals. To, to what extent do you think these you know, so-called tennis experts, <laughs> when they are critical of you for that, kind of forget about? I think uh, in the end of the day, um, you know, they always want to make a story and it's yeah. kind of boring if it's the same thing over and over again. So they're just trying to make up something new. And, you know, I, I'm at a point now where I don't really, you know, I don't care what people say about my game or, you know, because I do what I do and I know that I'm, you know, this is the way I, I win and this is the way I win matches. So what, whether people think it's a good way or not, it, you know, in, right. in the end, I, I'm there to win. I'm not there to make it look pretty. But, uh, you know, I, I just love what I do and I do it uh, pretty well. So something uh, your agent John said to me that I was actually <laughs> a little surprised by, you know, we were talking about, you know, I guess your your struggles a, a little bit over the past couple of years, and I, uh, it's like I don't even know if you can call it that because okay, if you aren't one, you're ten, yeah. you know, ten in the world. That's still, you know, one of the best in the world. But he said um, he thinks it's because maybe you lost a little motivation because you've become more interested in other areas of life. How fair do you think that is? You know, I think. I was number one in the world for two straight years and I had so many things happening and so, you know, every week the tournament always wants more from you because obviously you're the number one player in the world, you know, you have so many commitments on and off the court and at one point I think I just got so tired, I think my body just got so tired as well and I think for a little while I, I just... Uh, Why do you think you got so tired? Because, you know, everyone wants just a little bit a little piece of you and obviously that's great and I enjoyed when I was doing it but in the end I looking back at it I can see now that you know uh it's it was hard you know and it definitely takes a toll on your body and especially when you're so young you know you kind of need to try and find that balance and uh but in the end you know I I always work hard I always do everything possible to be the better player you know after every practice and you know I I think you know, obviously you always, there's so many things happening in life. And for me, life itself is more important than, right. you know, just playing tennis. But I think to say that 
my motivation wasn't there. I don't think that's right. I think it's just, you know, in a, in a, in a career, you know, it will always be up and downs a little bit. And, you know, still being 10 in the world is not that bad. It you know, I think suck, a lot of right. people would like to be in that position. Right. But I guess, you know, for, for me, you know, I always wanted to be higher. Obviously, I've been there and I've done that. And I kind of feel like I, I belong, you know, in the top. How hard is it to find proper balance between the work life and everything else you want to do? Um, you kind of just have to have your priorities right. And for me, obviously, the my tennis is my you know my number one priority, and I want to do really well there. But I have a life as well, and uh, you know I think balancing that is so important for me as a person because. You know, if I just think tennis, I'm going to go crazy. I, I love spending time with my friends. I love, you know, just doing other normal stuff. And that's what recharges my batteries. And that's, that's very important for me. Serena Williams. Yes. Um, you both have become uh, close friends. And I believe it, like, happened after kind of an exhibition in Barbados that you guys um, became close. And I was told that, like, adversity in each of your lives has made, actually, you both closer. Um, in what ways? Yeah, I love Serena. I mean, she is the best. I, you know, she's not only on the court is she an unbelievable athlete. You know, she is a person that I obviously look, I look very much up to because she's done so many things in the sport. But at the same time, you know, she always keep her feet on the ground. She's so good with people, and you know, that's what that's the biggest quality in a person to me is who they are and how friendly they are and how open Serena is just hilarious and we love spending time together and uh, you know we've gone through <laughs> quite a few things in our lives and uh, you know she's always been there for me and I've tried to be there for her whenever she's needed me and uh, I think that's what friend friends are for. Yeah it, but is that true like at tough times like you guys have I mean, that, that's made you both closer? Yeah, for sure. I mean, she she's there. She's the first one, you know, to call me. And if I don't pick up, she's going to keep calling me until I pick up. And if I still don't pick up, she's going to text me and say, you know, if you do not pick up, I'm going to stand outside your door. And if you do not open the door, I'm going to break it down to make sure that right. you're okay. You know, she's, uh, she's amazing. That's cool. Yeah. And when she had her pulmonary embolism, you were the first player there. You hopped on a flight, I believe, to exactly. L.A. Exactly, yeah. And I, I went to see her, and I, it was a very tough time for her and uh, very scary as well. And I... Uh, I went to see her and just uh, spent a little bit of time with her and just whatever she needed. What do you think you've learned from her? I've learned so much. She's still an inspiration to so many people because she's still on the council on the tour. She's still, you know, making sure that everybody is going to be okay. You know, she wouldn't have to do that. She's, you know, earned enough money. She's had enough trophies in her, you know, in her house and she doesn't need to do anything but she's always there for other people she always tries to help she always makes sure that you know the younger generation are taken care of she's inspiration to me because she's always been there for me whatever i i would need you do uh if i may say so myself a pretty good on-court impression uh, <laughs> of her um I, I got a bit of stick for that. By I, I the know. Way. Are you? Are, were you amazed by the amount of backlash you got? Yeah, over that? I was really. I mean, I'm a very good friend of Serena, and right. you know, I did not expect that to be blown out of proportion. I'm in no way racist, or right. so I. I was. I was shocked that you know the the media would blow it out that way, and uh, 
know, I, I was like, I called Serena and I'm like, you know, I hope you don't take this personally because right. obviously it was just a little bit fun and she's like, no, you know, don't worry. It's, it's not a big deal to me. Well, right. Because other people had done it before too. Exactly. You're playing. Other people have done it before and right. yeah, we're just having a bit of fun and right. it had nothing to do with, you know, what skin color you have. It was just a bit of fun and uh, it wasn't really. Well, right. I mean, you, you put towel in your yeah. chest to towel in the, b behind and I mean it was hey, she has amazing curves I I'm pretty flat so oh, <laughs> I would like some more yeah I mean I guess people the criticism was that you know there were racist comments because you're making fun of like an African-American's body but in reality it's like you're just poking fun at a good friend. Exactly you know? we we're just having right. a little laugh and uh, I learned a lesson there as well and I was like you know maybe I should not do that in the future. Uh, there's obviously no good segue uh, in, into this, and I know it's a, a topic that is no fun for uh, you to talk about. But obviously, recently, you and professional golfer, you know, Rory McIlroy, uh, broke off your engagement. And you know, I wonder, given you're a public figure, um, how difficult have you found it to avoid dealing publicly with a very private situation? Um, it was very hard because, you know, he made it very public from the start, you know, he put out a press release and all of that, so I didn't have a choice, you know, it was kind of, it just got put in my face, but, you know, right now, I'm in such a great place, I'm so happy, I'm in a better place than I've been in a very long time, and I have good things going on. I understand from talking to, uh, you know, people close to you, like, wedding invitations had been sent out already, you were with them, you know, th that morning, and then... Uh, later in the day, it happened on like a, a 10 minute call, the first five minutes of which you thought was a joke when he's <laughs> saying he wants to break it off. How yeah. surprised were you by how it all ended? Oh, I was shocked. I thought at least, you know, I would get a face to face or something, but there was nothing, you know, it was just a um, phone call and I did not hear from him again. You know, it's kind of like that. It's kind of just ended. and. You know, I don't think you expect yourself to be in a situation like that. You can't prepare yourself or your body for anything like that. So, you know, I think I was just in a bit of a shock phase there for a while. And uh, I went to Miami after the French Open and, you know, uh, Serena was there. Right. We had a great time. When the and, Heat uh, won the The chance. Heat won. Right. And, and uh, you know, we just had an amazing time. And I came back from that and I felt refreshed. I felt, you know, a new, my, a new self. And I started practicing towards uh, Wimbledon, Eastbourne, and I was playing well. And, yeah, I kind of I was like, you know what? That's a, that's a chapter in my life. I've learned a lot from it. You know, it's yeah. taught me a lot. It, I definitely learned a lot about myself, about relationships. I know in the future, what I would want in a guy, what I don't want. So you travel all over the world, obviously, for work. Um, how much are you actually able to enjoy the cities when you're there? Um, I try now more than I used to. I, I used to just do hotel uh, courts, hotel courts, but mm -hmm. the last year or so, I'm like, you know what? I'm playing tennis. I'm traveling to all these amazing cities, and I don't go out and see much of them. So I've made a really big effort to always go out and kind of explore. And um, Is it hard when given all the professional responsibilities when you're sometimes, in Sometimes, but at the same time I found that, you know, it doesn't hurt to enjoy yourself. It doesn't hurt right. to, to, you know, take a little longer drive to go out for dinner because you don't get to experience it. And it actually helps you because you feel alive. You feel like you're actually in, in that place and in that city and you, you kind of you know, you travel the world and you get to see it. And 
that's, that's very important. How about your favorite cities? I love New York. New York is uh, probably my favorite city. I love London, uh, Miami. We had a tournament in Bali one time, which okay. was pretty cool. I couldn't focus on the tennis. No? <laughs> no, it was impossible. We played at a, this unbelievable resort where we had the courts at the resort. And every time I had to walk past the pool and the beach to get to the tennis, I'm like, what am I doing here playing <laughs> right. tennis? You know, right. and uh, I didn't do very well. So I ended up by the You were able to beach. hang out. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, it, it was a win-win situation. You speak eight languages. I understand. Well, yeah, well, I speak Danish, English, Polish fluently, and okay. then Czech, Slovakian is very similar to Polish. Norwegian, Swedish is very similar to Danish, and I speak some Russian. And, okay. Um, my Russian, if I spend a little bit more time in Russia, I can speak it really well, but, you know, I don't use it, use it as much, but I can get by and I understand everything, so, So yeah. say hello in as many languages <laughs> as you can. Uh, hi, cześć, um... Hi. Здравствуйте. Ahoy. Shena. Some of them go kind of go hand in hand, yeah. Why, why is it easy or relatively easy for you to pick up new languages? My parents are Polish, so I had that from birth, Polish and Danish since I grew up in Denmark. And we learned English in school. Um, and then I traveled all the time, so yeah. I had those three languages already kind of from the start and uh, then everything else came easy to me because I think once you know a few languages, the other languages get easier to learn. If somebody asked you this question and I thought it was great. Um, what language do you dream in? <laughs> Depends where I spend most time and who I talk to and... In all, in all seriousness? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it really depends. It's if I if I've been speaking English or if I've been using English a lot, I would I would think or dream or count in English. If I'd been spending a lot of time with my Polish friends or with my parents, I would dream or in in Polish or the same in, with the Danish. It's kind of those three that it mixes. And I even sometimes I catch myself when I'm doing I'm doing a lot of on the skipping rope and I have to count. And sometimes I I'm like, what language was that that I'm <laughs> counting in? And oh, it, sure. it actually varies. It depends. All right, and um, once and for all, um, explain how you actually pronounce your name. So if you have you, to... You've let American people get away with Caroline saying it Bosniaki, one way. Caroline right. yeah. So, and that's how, in, in Denmark as well, but if you do it in proper Polish, actually the I in the end would be an A, and it would be Wojniacka. So that would be the proper pronunciation uh, because women in Poland always are usually end on an A like Radvanska or Damohowska. But you don't <laughs> correct people anymore. No, because I kind of grew up, I grew up in Denmark and it was so hard for them to pronounce it Wozniacki in the right way. So I just, I kind of got stuck with Wozniacki and I, I'm used to that and <laughs> that's kind of the right way, I guess, now for me. Really a pleasure. It was nice. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening to my chat with Caroline Wozniacki. To see more, including outtakes from our interview, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also dive into our deep library, which includes more than 2,000 clips spanning 12 plus years. Thanks again for listening.